0: on today's episode of epic fails of history we'll be taking a look at a few stories that might be considered a little bit more on the fringe of history than what we normally cover on this show we've got one of the most confounding unsolved mysteries a potential government cover-up where the official story keeps changing and a conspiracy theory that turned out to be completely true
1: you unlock this door with the key of imagination beyond it is another dimension
0: I'm Eric Slater, I'm Justin Aki, and I'm Chris Carroll, and this is Epic Fails of, um, History. Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. The only thing we have to fear is... Well, when the president does it, that means that it is not illegal.
2: Epic
3: fails.
0: Ridicule is not a part of the scientific method, and the public should not be taught that it is. Professor J. Allen Hynek. The Curious Case of D.B. Cooper the FBI's greatest unsolved mystery.
1: DB Cooper. DB Cooper. DB Cooper. DB Cooper. Cooper. The hijacker carrying a briefcase which held explosives. When he got on a plane
2: last night, he was just another passenger, but today, master criminal. We don't know who he
0: is or was, where he came from or where he went. DB Cooper is easily one of the most confounding mysteries of the 20th century. The mysterious hijacker who got away with $200,000 has proven to be as elusive as Bigfoot or the Loch Ness Monster. So much so that after 45 years, the FBI finally closed the door on the case back in 2016. If the frickin' Federal Bureau of Investigation gives up, you know it's probably not going to get solved by some random podcaster in his basement. Even Sherlock Holmes himself would have had trouble with this one. I my dear Watson. The Facts In 1971, a mysterious man in a plain suit and tie, wearing nondescript sunglasses and carrying nothing but a black attache case, arrives at Portland International Airport like he just walked off the set of Mad Men. The man who identifies himself as Dan Cooper buys a ticket for a Northwest Orient Airlines flight. He boards the plane in Portland, Oregon, Flight 305, nonstop service to Seattle, Washington. It's a short 30-minute flight, but one that would go on to stay with the crew and the other 35 passengers for the rest of their lives. After ordering a bourbon and 7-Up, the man known only as Dan Cooper passes a note to a stewardess. The woman doesn't immediately read the note, assuming it's just another guy trying to join the Mile High Club. But when the gentleman politely tells her to read it, she soon discovers a message indicating that he has a bomb in his briefcase. The flight attendant sits next to Cooper as he shows her a row of red cylinders attached to wires. He then orders her to relay his demands to the pilot. The woman, Florence Schaffner, nervously approached the cockpit, where she informed the flight crew that they were being hijacked. The pilot, Captain William A. Scott, radioed into Northwest Flight Operations in Minnesota. He requests $200,000 in a knapsack by 5 p.m. He wants two front parachutes, two back parachutes. He wants the money in negotiable American currency. Mr. Cooper instructed them to meet on the runway with fuel trucks and told them that passengers would be free to go once he got his money in parachutes. At approximately 5.46 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, the Boeing 727 landed at Seattle's Tacoma Airport. When asked to speak to an FAA official in a face-to-face meeting, Cooper turned them down. One of the other flight attendants, Tina Mucklow, retrieved the money from the feds as instructed. When Mucklow attempted to hand him instructions for the parachutes, Cooper apparently declined, indicating he knew what he was doing. The plane refueled according to plan, and the passengers were allowed to depart unharmed as Cooper counted the ransom bills. Allegedly, he attempted to tip the crew with some of his own cash, but they declined, stating company policy. Mr. Cooper then outlined his flight plans to the pilots in the cockpit. He ordered them to chart a course southeast for Mexico City, and they agreed to stop and refuel in Reno, Nevada, en route. Now here's where it gets weird. He requested that they fly at just 100 knots, the slowest possible airspeed without stalling the aircraft. In addition, he told them to keep the landing gear deployed and the cabin unpressurized. He further specified that the wing flaps be lowered to 15 degrees and to keep the plane no higher than 10,000 feet. The pilots themselves weren't sure if the plane could safely handle those conditions, but Cooper calmly assured them that it could. At 7.40 p.m., the plane took off once more, and it was soon tailed by two F-106 fighter jets. At 8 p.m., a warning light flashed in the cockpit. The aft staircase had been deployed. One of the pilots called to Cooper over the intercom asking if he required assistance. He responded with a simple no. It would be the last time anyone would ever hear from him again. When the plane landed in Reno at 11.02 p.m., the aft stairs were still down and Captain Scott confirmed to the local authorities that Dan Cooper was nowhere to be found. Federal agents moved in and the bomb squad swept through the plane, but the only clues left behind were unidentified fingerprints, two of the four requested parachutes, and Cooper's black clip-on tie. It would seem that in the middle of the night during a torrential downpour, D.B. Cooper lowered the aft stairs of the plane, secured his parachute and briefcase, using the other parachute to store the cash, before leaping out into the dark, cold, windy night and forever disappearing from history. The investigation. The FBI immediately opened an investigation into the incident, interviewing eyewitnesses in Portland, Seattle, and Reno. They came up with very little in the way of tangible evidence, and unfortunately the composite sketch didn't help much in the way of identifying the culprit. One of the initial suspects was a man named D.B. Cooper, a white male from Oregon with a previous criminal record. While he was quickly ruled out as the mastermind behind the hijacking, the name D.B. Cooper stuck around thanks to a sloppy reporter and countrywide game of telephone. Even though the real D.B. Cooper only ever went by Dan Cooper, which may or may not have been an alias since he paid for the flight with cash and left behind no discernible identification. When the passengers first departed in Seattle, apparently most of them weren't even aware that the plane had been hijacked. FBI Special Agent Ralph Himmelsbach later stated that no one was unduly upset by the ordeal. And from all the eyewitness reports from the crew, Mr. Cooper had appeared to be perfectly calm. According to Tina Mucklow, he was not nervous, he seemed rather nice, and he was never cruel or nasty. The search for Cooper continued through the northwest United States as the feds performed aerial flyovers, combing through the possible landing sites in the woods, They patrolled numerous lakes in the area and even deployed a submarine to search the depths of Lake Merwin. They found no sign of the hijacker or his equipment. On top of that, the FBI continued to keep an eye out for the marked bills that he'd absconded with, but none of the bills were ever used, leaving many to speculate that he hadn't survived his escape from the plane. Several newspapers put out ransoms for information on the case over the next decade but the few leads that came about were later disproven.
3: Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, your
0: opinion, man. The clues. In 1980, a new clue surfaced in the form of $5,800 in damaged $20 bills. They were recovered by a kid in Vancouver, Canada, washed up on the shores of the Columbia River. The FBI soon confirmed that these were in fact from the same stash as the Cooper Caber, but nothing else ever manifested from this reveal. Another odd clue that people like to point to is that, according to eyewitness reports, it appeared as though Cooper had some kind of training. He seemed to know what he was doing. He had an extensive knowledge of the aircraft and skydiving. During the incident, Dan spoke with Tina Mucklow, the flight attendant, and as they passed over Tacoma Airport, he offhandedly mentioned that McCord Air Force Base was only a 20-minute drive from there. At one point, she asked him, why Northwest Airlines? He responded, it's not because I have a grudge against your airlines, miss. I just have a grudge. Weirdly enough, conspiracy theorists have since pointed out that the name Dan Cooper could have been an alias based on an obscure French-Canadian comic book character who was a pilot for the Canadian Air Force. To add more fuel to this theory, some of the issues of the series involved ransom money as well as hijackings and even had Dan Cooper, the character, parachuting out of airplanes in a business suit. If this connection were to prove true, it would seem that DB Cooper had based his alias on the comic book character, indicating that he either came across the comics while on a military tour in Europe, or that he'd grown up with them in Canada. If he was Canadian, it might explain why he specified that he wanted American currency, and why he referred to Minnesota as a nice country at one point. He even allegedly introduced himself as Cooper, Dan Cooper, mimicking Sean Connery's iconic delivery as James Bond in Dr. No and from Russia with Love.
1: I admire your luck, Mr. Bond. James
0: Bond. Check out our reviews of the Bond movies over on Podcasters Assemble. In 2009, it was revealed that a team of citizen sleuths, under the leadership of a paleontologist Tom K, had continued the investigation with modern, cutting-edge forensics.
2: Come on, gang! Let's unload! Hey! Mike, where's scooby do He's supposed to be helping me! He went.
0: Although they came up with little to nothing, one odd clue they did discover was that the tie he left behind contained traces of pure titanium and rare minerals, which were consistent with alloys that Boeing was secretly using to develop their supersonic aircraft throughout the 70s, which may indicate that he was an employee of the company, which would explain both his knowledge of the 727 and his line about holding a grudge. The Suspects There have been dozens of different suspects over the years but none of which have been ruled out as the man himself beyond a reasonable doubt. Ted Braden, a special forces commando who served in Vietnam and part of the 101st Airborne in World War II. He also happened to be a master skydiver and convicted felon. He was even an instructor who taught halo jumps to members of Project Delta. During his time in Vietnam, he deserted and became a mercenary in the Congo, where he was later arrested by the CIA and brought back to the States, where he was honorably discharged. He was investigated and arrested for a number of thefts over the years, including fraud schemes and grand theft auto, eventually landing him in prison in the late 80s. Kenneth Peter Christensen, an Army paratrooper who enlisted in 1944 and passed away in 1994. In 2003, his brother Lyle was convinced he was the guy after watching a D.B. Cooper documentary. Jack Kofelt, a con man who claimed to have been D.B. Cooper, saying he injured his leg when he landed and lost the money in the process. Records indicate that he was in Portland at the time and did injure his leg around then, as he claimed. Lynn Doyle, L.D. Cooper, A Korean War veteran proposed as a possible suspect by his niece due to odd circumstances regarding that day and his obsession with the Dan Cooper comic books. Joe Lackich, He was working at an electronics capacity facility at the time, which would explain the materials on the tie, and had recently lost his daughter during a botched FBI hostage negotiation, which would explain the grudge. Barbara Dayton. Born Robert Dayton a World War II vet who later worked with explosives in construction and aspired to an aviation career. She underwent gender reassignment surgery in 1969 and claimed to have staged the hijacking, disguised as a man, to get back at the airline industry. William Gossett, a Marine Corps Army and Air Force veteran who served in both the Korean War and Vietnam, who claimed that the missing money is in a safety deposit box in Vancouver. Robert Rackstraw, Another Vietnam vet, retired pilot, and ex-con. Rackstraw pulled a number of stunts over the years, including faking his own death with a false mayday claim while flying over Monterey Bay before repainting the plane. He was one of the initial suspects by the FBI and found himself in the spotlight once again in 2016 after a new book and History Channel program came out, but he fervently denied that he was Cooper until his death in 2019. Sheridan Peterson a Marine during World War II who worked at Boeing at the time and would often tease the media about being D.B. Cooper, but when the FBI pressed him for more information, he claimed to have been in Nepal at the time. Entrepreneur and D.B. Cooper experts claim that he's 98% sure that Sheridan Peterson was Dan Cooper. He passed away in 2021 at the age of 94. There have been a few other suspects over the decades, including more than a couple deathbed confessions and some pretty convincing stories here and there, but none of them, with any hard, tangible evidence compelling enough to prove that they were in fact the hijacker, the legend. Like many other unsolved mysteries, the story of D.B. Cooper has captured the public's imagination over the years. There have been countless books, movies, comic books, and podcasts made about the case, it even sparked a merchandise craze with t shirts, coasters, and other memorabilia. A few years back, Oni Press put out a sci fi comic book series called The Secret History of DB Cooper by Brian Trula. <laughs> there are even CooperCon conventions in the Pacific Northwest, and a literal DB Cooper themed craft brewery called Victor 23 in Vancouver. DB Cooper has become synonymous with other notorious larger than life crooks like Jesse James or Al Capone. But the difference here is that we know very little about Dan Cooper, the man himself, just his exploits on that fateful day. Which might be why the legend has persisted all this time. We may never really know who he was, why he did it, or whether or not he actually survived the landing. In more recent pop culture, the Marvel Cinematic Universe's Loki, the Asgardian trickster god himself, played by Tom Hiddleston, was actually revealed to be D.B. Cooper in a flashback during an episode of the Loki Disney Plus series.
2: Bourbon and soda. Thank you. Absolutely. Is there anything else I can do for you, sir?
0: I suppose we'll find out, won't we?
1: Uh, miss?
4: Yes, Mr. Cooper?
1: You might want to take a look at that note. I have a bomb.
0: And if you haven't already, I highly recommend checking out the recent Netflix documentary, D.B. Cooper, Where Are You? The true story? Last November marked the 50th anniversary of the D.B. Cooper case, and it seems that we're no closer to getting closure than that strange November day in 1971. To date, the D.B. Cooper case is still the only instance of air piracy that has never been solved. Most investigators seem to believe that he jumped from the plane around Ariel Washington, but many dispute whether or not he would have been able to survive the skydive under such adverse conditions. However, there have been a few enterprising daredevils who have since proven that it is in fact possible to pull off. While some have argued that he didn't have the proper equipment on him, others have pointed out that he could have had additional tools on him in his briefcase or in the second carry-on that some of the passengers claim to have seen him with. Further complicating things is that, depending on where he landed, evidence might have been obliterated by the subsequent eruption of Mount St. Helens in 1980. In 2016, the FBI officially closed the file on the unsolved mystery, redirecting resources to other, more pressing matters. FBI Special Agent Larry Carr, who did a thorough investigation into the case, believes that it's highly unlikely that Cooper survived, especially considering one of the two parachutes he took with him was inoperable. He went on to say that he still believes the real D.B. Cooper was in the Air Force, stationed in Europe where he became a fan of the Dan Cooper comic books, he thinks that Cooper may have originally been from the East Coast, but took a job in Seattle, most likely a cargo loader on planes. Agent Carr believes that Cooper may have lost his job during the economic downturn in the aviation industry at the time, prompting his desperate plot, and that he was probably a loner, someone without any friends or family that would have missed him when he disappeared into the night on the eve of the Thanksgiving holiday. We may never know the full story, the man behind the myth but the legend will surely outlive him, regardless of whether the case is ever solved. Epic Wins of History! This week's epic win of history is on Marie Curie, a Polish chemist who discovered radium, studied radioactivity, and helped to invent the first portable x-ray machine used on the front lines of World War I. She was also the first woman to win the Nobel Prize in 1903, and she did it twice. Because she was born during the Victorian era, Opportunities for women were few and far between, so she was forced to study underground because, unfortunately, women uh, performing science was frowned upon by society at that time. She later became the first woman to earn a PhD from a French university. She then became the first female professor at the Sorbonne. Her research was invaluable to radiation treatments for cancer. Tragically, she ultimately succumbed to leukemia from radiation poisoning through her work, but left behind a legacy that would change science forever.
3: Howdy ho failureinos, it's your old buddy Chris here for a super depressing episode of Chris's Conspiracy Corner. We're going to talk about the CIA's top secret Cold War research program that has been confirmed to be true, MKUltra. And it is horrifying. Chris's Conspiracy Corner.
2: In the 1950s and 60s, the CIA conducted a sinister secret program to master the science of mind control. While the secret studies might sound like the stuff of horror science fiction, sometimes the truth is even stranger.
3: So, why did this shit show come about? Well, at the height of the Cold War, uh, the CIA received some, I'm guessing incorrect, uh, intelligence that said that Russia and North Korea, towards the end of the Korean War, uh, had created a way to control minds. And uh, rather than going, <laughs> okay guys, they went, holy shit, we better torture a bunch of innocent people. You know, cause that's the logical conclusion. So basically starting in 1953, there was an expansive program undertaken across more than 80 institutions, universities, and hospital, and each one carried out torturous experiments, including electrocution, verbal and sexual abuse, and probably most famously dosing subjects with massive quantities of our good old buddy, LSD.
1: Walter, is that LSD? LSD, why would I? Walter, what are you doing? I'm dosing a caterpillar. Dosing, as in LSD? Well, it's a special blend. I see, it's wonderful, isn't it? Uh,
3: What's the worst thing about this isn't what they did, but that these experiments often used unwitting subjects. So people who didn't sign up for this and didn't even know they were in being exposed to this or part of a test or anything like that, and a lot of these people were left with permanent psychological damage. Basically, this was all supposed to go away, even when it finally ended in the 70s. The records pertaining to it were destroyed uh, under orders of the CIA director himself, but because the CIA sucks at everything, hi guys, I'm sure you're listening, <laughs> but a small misfiled cache of, uh, of documents uh, and records were accidentally left intact. And, of course, those were found. And basically, uh, several government investigations helped bring the project to light. And today, you, as a member of the public, have access to some 20,000 documents concerning Project MKUltra's mind control experiments.
1: And I'd have done it, too, if you kids hadn't come along.
3: This is really messed up, man. <laughs> it's So, basically... um the CIA head at the time in 1953, Alan Welsh Dulles sanctioned the project and it was headed by a chemist and poison expert, so you know he's a fun guy, Sidney Gottlieb, who was never bullied once as a child. And uh, he was known in you know inner circles, probably behind his back, as the black sorcerer. And one of the original goals of this project was to create a truth serum that could be used against Soviet spies, prisoners of war, that kind of thing. Sounds like a reasonable enough thing for a scientist to want to create. Truth serum. But, you know, because this is the real world, that proved rather difficult.
5: My name is Bob Wilton. I'm a journalist. I've been investigating a story about a classified government program. I'd heard that the U.S. government was training psychic soldiers and that Lynn Cassidy was the best of the best. I've been reactivated. I'm on a mission. I could come. Lynn's story was unbelievable, crazy, and completely true. But instead,
3: they kind of believed that they could sort of get mind control by heavily altering someone's mental state, usually with hypnosis or drugs, a lot of drugs. (laughs) Gottlieb realized that if he was going to be able to control the mind, first you have to kind of break it. Um, And journalist Stephen Kinzer, who is writing a book on the subject, continues, quote, second, you had to find a way to insert a new mind into that resulting void. And then get very far, number two, But Gottlieb did a lot of work on number one. A declassified document from 1955 added that MK Ultra sought to observe, quote, materials which will cause the victim to age faster or slower in maturity and substances which will promote illogical thinking and impulsiveness to the point where the recipient would be discredited in public. As one can imagine, um, messing around with mind-altering drugs and experiments Uh, especially with kind of nefarious goals, had some disastrous results. And the CIA knew this was really crappy. So they spread this out over multiple places all around geographically. There was almost 200 researchers involved and a lot of them didn't even know that they were working for the CIA, uh, as typically they would operate. So basically, Godly wanted to wipe the human mind, so people were giving large doses of various mind-altering substances. They were dosed with LSD, opioids, THC, which is not gonna f- up that bad, but whatever, and the synthetic government-created super hallucinogen, BZ. Great Scott! And uh, I kinda wanna try that. <laughs> Anyway, uh, as well as widely available substances like alcohol and things like that. And they would often be administered two drugs with opposite effects, like a barbiturate and amphetamine at the same time, uh, so that they could observe the subject's reactions or give people under the uh, influence of alcohol another drug like LSD. So you're already drunk as shit and now you're tripping balls.
1: We were somewhere around Barstow on the edge of the desert. When the drugs begin to take hold.
3: Like that is... If anyone's ever done LSD, and I went to college, so I have, that's like the worst thing you could do. And if you're someone who's been really, really drunk, you can imagine what throwing LSD into the mix could do. Uh, There's a lot of hypnosis used, and the hypnosis would often be used to try to create fear in people. And um, they were also... um, give him paralytics, so paralytic drugs, and then mind control substances, so like, they give you a drug so you can't move at all, and then they dose you with a ton of LSD. You can literally break someone's mind doing that. I mean, literally. And uh, these people are f-ing terrible. One of the experimenters, uh, Donald Cameron, who went on to become the first chairman of the World Psychiatric Association and the president of the American and Canadian Psychiatric Associations, drugged his patients really deeply drugged his patients, and repeatedly played tapes of noises or suggestions while they were comatose for long periods of time, hoping to correct schizophrenia by erasing memories outright so that he could reprogram people's minds. Well, really what these tests did is they left his subjects comatose for months on end, and many of them, probably most of them, suffered a lot of permanent damages, including incontinence and amnesia. So I guess it kind of worked. He broke their brains.
2: I'm going to use all the power of my brain.
3: <laughs> Uh-oh. One of the worst things about this is Gottlieb admitted that his team targeted, quote, people who could not fight back. So this means prisoners, sex workers, mental patients, terminal cancer patients, you know, some volunteers and paid students, things like that. Others were addicts who they were promised drugs if they participated. So <laughs> that's kind of They got their drugs all right. Yeah, so most of the records are destroyed, clearly. So we don't even know who all these tests were performed on to really get a scope of of how many people were were irreversibly damaged by this and illegally experimented on. But there were a few subjects whose documents weren't destroyed, and some were a little notable, including Ken Kesey, or Kesey. I think it's Kesey, but he was the author of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, unironically. Uh, a lyricist for the Grateful Dead, Robert Hunter, and Whitey Bulger, the notorious Boston mob boss. So that's cool. Keezy was a volunteer. Uh, I joined the project as a student, and uh, he, you know, didn't really seem to have a whole hell of a lot of problems with it. In one experiment, an unwitting mental patient in Kentucky was given a dose of LSD every day for 174 consecutive days. I, I cannot. Cannot describe to you if you don't know what this... This permanently alters your brain chemistry. I mean, permanently. And not in a good way. And if you're already a mental patient, there's a possibility he already had some mental imbalances. So God only knows what it did to him. But uh, Whitey Bulger... This might be bullshit honestly, I you know, can't really believe much this dude says, but he suggested that a lot of his murderous career as a crime lord was at least in part brought on by his participation in MK Ultra, where he said he would be dosed with LSD, the large amount of LSD monitored by a doctor but was also being repeatedly asking questions like, would you ever kill anyone Uh, while he was tripping his face off? So who knows? There may be some truth to that, or maybe he's just a psycho. It looks like Ted Kaczynski may have been a subject uh, when he was at Harvard in the early 60s. There's suspicion that Charles Manson was as well. Uh, That's not documented. That's not confirmed. But there's suspicion that the infamous Charles Manson uh, was a... uh, participant in the MKUltra experiments. Look, I can keep going. There's a laundry list of horrors uh, involved here that the government of the United States and Canadian governments did to their own people, mostly the American government, Uh, but apparently this crossed over into Canada at times. So, yeah, um, for those that survived, because a lot of people did not survive long term, um, but for those that survived, the uh, fallout, I suppose you should say, from some of these experiments included a lot of super fun things like depression, uh, anterograde and retrograde amnesia, paralysis, withdrawal, of course, confusion, because they didn't even know they'd been freaking dosed, disorientation, see, confusion, pain, insomnia, uh, yeah, and schizophrenic-like mental states. A lot of these were kind of untreated for a lot of these people for a very long time, if ever. The CIA just kind of came in and their brains up forever. So basically, uh there was a lot of noise about this program, and the CIA kind of denied that it was ever a thing. CIA Director Richard Helms ordered all files destroyed because he thought that would be really bad news news, right uh, in nineteen seventy five President Gerald Ford commissioned an investigation into CIA activities, hoping to kind of get rid of this notion of conspiracies going on inside this shadowy organization. So there was the Church Committee of the US Congress and the Rockefeller Commission. The investigation revealed that Helms had destroyed most of the evidence, but that same year, a collection of some 8,000 documents were discovered in a financial records building, and they were later uh, released under a Freedom of Information Act request in 1977. Uh, After this was made available to the public, the Senate launched a collection of hearings on the ethics of the project and there were some lawsuits filed and everything like that and there were some settlements but nothing significant and a lot of people didn't get any justice cuz it was kind of hard to prove what they're you know if they didn't have any physical effects like no oh, they just messed my brain up well you can't really prove that in a lot of cases so
1: you want answers i think i'm entitled you want answers i want the truth you can't handle the truth
3: you know it's pretty horrifying to think but The government does not even deny, of course, that the MKUltra experiments took place. It has admitted that the experiments took place across, like I said, over 80 institutions and often on unwitting subjects. But, you know, there are still some conspiracies, I suppose, surrounding here. Mostly that the the program is still running. That's probably the most prevalent conspiracy. You know, unfortunately, we can't really prove that wrong. So, not only is this just one of the most horrifying things I've ever heard, And it was perpetrated against American citizens, vulnerable American citizens, who rather than being protected, were exploited and tortured and basically just kind of forgotten about. And that's pretty horrible. And the idea that something like that would still be going on today is, um, frankly, like that's one of the scariest things I can imagine. So, you know, hopefully next time we'll have something fun. Like was the moon landing actually faked and directed by Stanley Kubrick or is the mothman real? <laughs> I don't know. We'll find something. But sweet <laughs> Moses, MK Ultra is just straight up nightmare fuel.
0: Crisis Conspiracy Corner. Yeah.
1: Not real. We interrupt this program to give you a bulletin just received from one of our naval units at sea. A large object traveling at supersonic speed is headed over the North Atlantic. The east coast of
0: the United States. So I'm recording this in November of 2023. It's been a hectic few years, to say the least. As someone who typically follows world events pretty closely, it's been... a lot. And honestly, I've had to step back from it quite a bit. Because while it's good to be informed, it's also not healthy to stress and worry about events completely outside of your control. Despite all the recent doom and gloom, however... If you can look beyond the ever-present threat of nuclear war, there have actually been a lot of really interesting things going on in the world. A lot of potentially history-changing developments, in fact, that the mainstream media seems a lot less focused on these days. If you've been following me on social media for the past several months, you may have seen me going down the rabbit hole on the whole UAP topic.
1: Aliens coming down here, y'all. Look at that shit! Those are aliens! Sorry, I'm trying to record it. Aliens! Y'all need to be shooting that! We can getting it! Y'all need to be calling damn news! Oh, they come
0: to Earth! Prior to about 2020, I was a pretty hardline skeptic on a lot of these uh, so-called paranormal topics. That is, until the Pentagon started to take this kind of stuff seriously.
5: Does the United States believe that there may be life outside of earth what we believe is that there are unexplained aerial phenomena that have been cited and reported by pilots navy and air force that these phenomena have in some cases had an impact on our training ranges that alone m- makes it a national security issue worth worth looking at we don't know we don't have the answers about what these phenomena are I wonder if, if the
0: President believes that these claims warrant further investigation. Do you guys see some of these claims and allegations as, as credible?
5: If the President didn't believe that the sightings by pilots were serious enough to be considered, he wouldn't have wanted the Pentagon to stand up in office to, to look at this, to analyze the data, to collect reports, to provide a system by which uh, we can collate the information and better figure out what we've got here. But that work's ongoing.
0: And then I did some research. It turns out that so many of the things that I had so often, sometimes arrogantly, dismissed as nonsense years earlier turned out to be uh, far more than just hoaxes and scary campfire stories. I've come a long way since then, and I'm honestly a lot more comfortable with the mystery, with not knowing. After all, science is still in its infancy, and often raises far more questions than it can definitively answer. Now, I'm not saying cryptids like Bigfoot or the Loch Ness Monster are real. I don't think that the Earth is flat, or hollow for that matter. And it's worth mentioning that there are a lot of harmful conspiracies out there, like the whole QAnon movement, that are just straight up dangerous and have no basis in reality. But then there are things like the JFK assassination, where there are still a lot of unanswered questions as to what exactly happened all these years later. Because... Even after all this time, those documents have yet to be fully declassified. There are a lot of instances, especially throughout the 20th century, where the US government has straight up lied to the American people, often with dire consequences like the second Gulf of Tonkin incident, which Chris and I talked about back on our first episode of the show, the Bay of Pigs invasion, which we talked about during our Cuban Missile Crisis two-parter, the Iran-Contra affair, or Reagan's so-called Star Wars satellite defense system, which tricked the Soviet Union into going bankrupt. Nixon's failed war against drugs, which we're still feeling the effects of today, the horrendous Tuskegee syphilis study from 1932, and of course, the CIA's notorious MKUltra project, which Chris talked about earlier. And we only know about that one thanks to the Freedom of Information Act, and it was almost never discovered because they actually attempted to destroy the evidence, which begs the question, what other secret projects have remained under the radar? The problem with classifying all this stuff for so long is that it causes us to wonder what it is that they're really hiding. It might actually be totally mundane, or even just covering up some kind of embarrassing mistake or oversight. But it's this total lack of transparency that leads people to wonder. It becomes a breeding ground for conspiracy theories. And it doesn't help when the governments of the world continue to get caught doing shady stuff behind the scenes. And then there's UFOs.
4: The Pentagon have confirmed feel you. the existence of the UFO Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program. They're studying these objects and we didn't even know about this.
6: Every single eyeball in the room was just like, whoa. We do not possess that technology.
4: My gosh. In your opinion, does the U.S. government have crashed materials in their possession?
0: Yes. In 2017, a New York Times article revealed the existence of a top-secret UFO program within the Pentagon, along with several now-famous videos that were leaked to the public. Then, on July 26, 2023, earlier this year, three former U.S. military personnel testified before Congress, under oath, about unidentified aerial phenomenon including Navy fighter pilots Lt. Ryan Graves and Commander Dave Fravor, both of whom were first-hand witnesses to these phenomena. With the footage, eyewitnesses, and classified sensor data to back up their claims, specifically the 2004 Tic Tac incident with Commander Fravor. The third witness testifying at this hearing was a high-ranking intelligence officer, David Grush, a man who used to brief the President. Who came forward to testify about a top-secret UAP crash retrieval program that's allegedly been hidden from the public for decades. And not only that they have recovered materials from a non-human intelligence, but that there were biologics that came with some of these incidents.
2: An Air Force veteran and former intelligence official is going public about a secret government UFO recovery program he says has been collecting alien spacecraft for decades. In recent years, the government has taken a more public role in acknowledging sightings of unidentified aerial phenomena, but whistleblower David Grouch says the government is hiding the existence of a top-secret program to retrieve what he calls technical vehicles of non-human origin that have either landed or crashed on Earth. Uh,
6: Believe it or not, as as fantastical as that sounds,
2: it's true. Bruce did not reveal any specifics, but says he has filed a whistleblower complaint to Congress, the intelligence community, Inspector General as well.
6: These are retrieving non-human origin uh, technical vehicles, you know, call it spacecraft if you will. Non-human, exotic origin vehicles that have either landed or crashed.
0: We have spacecraft from another species.
6: We do, yeah.
0: Grush was tasked by Congress to investigate UAP claims within the DoD, and after interviewing 40 witnesses within the Pentagon on the subject, he became convinced that this information was being illegally withheld from congressional oversight. Grush claims that he and his wife were even threatened, so he lawyered up and immediately came forward to the public. According to the Inspector General, his claims were credible and urgent. Arrow has since released their official reports indicating that there seems to be a correlation between UAP sightings and nuclear activity around the world, near nuclear power plants, aircraft carriers, nuclear submarines, and, of course, nuclear missile silos. But some of the biggest UAP hotspots were found in proximity to nuclear test sites, especially in the American Southwest, like the Trinity test site, in Los Alamos, New Mexico. Or, nuclear accidents like Chernobyl, in Ukraine, And fukushima in japan as well as hiroshima and nagasaki which brings me to the roswell incident one of the biggest ufo incidents in the american zeitgeist occurred in 1947 at roswell new mexico just two years after the first nuclear test and just a couple hours drive from the trinity test site it all started on june 24th 1947 when aviator kenneth arnold reported seeing nine unidentified flying objects above mount rainier in washington state that he referred to as flying saucers this is the first major encounter since the foo fighter incidents during world war ii shortly after ww mac brazel discovered a field of debris scattered across his ranch and on july 5th reported it to sheriff george wilcox who then alerted the army just three days later 509th commander Colonel William Blanchard ordered that the recovered material be gathered up and sent out to Fort Worth Air Base as quickly as possible. George Walsh broke the news over the radio in a press release.
2: Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. Army officers say the missile found sometime last week has been inspected at Roswell, New Mexico, and sent to Wright Field, Ohio, for further inspection. Late this afternoon, a bulletin from New Mexico suggested that the widely publicized mystery of the flying saucers may soon be solved. Army Air Force officers reported that one of the strange disks had been found and inspected sometime last week. Our correspondents in Los Angeles and Chicago have been in contact with Army officials, endeavoring to obtain all possible late information. Joe Wilson reports to us now from Chicago. The army may be getting to the bottom of all this talk about the so-called flying saucer. As a matter of fact, the 509th Atomic Bomb Group headquarters at Roswell, New Mexico, reports that it has received one of the discs, which landed on a ranch outside Roswell. The disc landed at a ranch at Corona, New Mexico, and the rancher turned it over to the Air Force. Rancher W. W. Brazel was the man who discovered the saucer. Colonel William Blanchard of the Roswell Air Base refuses to give details of what the flying disc looks like. In Fort Worth, Texas, where the object was first sent, Brigadier General Roger Ramey says that it is being shipped by air to the AAF Research Center at Field, Ohio. And on July 8,
0: 1947, the Roswell Daily Record ran with the story, announcing the Army's capture of a flying saucer, but was retracted the following day with military personnel claiming that it was all just an ordinary weather balloon, presenting scraps of tinfoil rubber and wood. According to Major Jesse Marcel years later, the weather balloon story had been a cover-up, claiming that the photos of tinfoil had been staged. In 1978, he was interviewed by Stan Friedman and admitted that he believed the crashed materials to have been of extraterrestrial origin.
1: I am here to discuss the so-called flying saucers. The Air Force interest in this problem has been due to our feeling of an obligation to identify and analyze to the best of our ability anything in the air that may have the possibility of threat or menace to the United States. In pursuit of this obligation since 1947, we have received and analyzed between one and two thousand reports that have come to us from all kinds of sources. Of this great mass of reports, we have been able adequately to explain the great bulk of them. We've been able to explain them as uh, hoaxes, as erroneously identified friendly aircraft, as meteorological or electronic phenomena, or as light aberrations. However, there have been a certain percentage of this volume of reports that have been made by credible observers of relatively incredible things. It is this group of observations that we now are attempting to resolve. We have, as of date, come to only one firm conclusion with respect to this remaining percentage, and that is that it does not contain any pattern of purpose or of consistency that we can relate with any, to any conceivable threat to the United States. Is that? We can say that the recent sightings are in no way connected with any secret development by any agency of the United States.
0: With all due respect to the Air Force, I believe that some of them will prove to be of interplanetary origin. The weirdest thing about the Roswell case is that the official story has changed several times. Newspapers first reported on the incident stating that army personnel found a crashed flying disc, but this was later retracted when the US military claimed that it was merely the debris of a weather balloon and allegedly staged some photographs to dismiss the notion under the guise of avoiding mass panic. Several wild claims came out over the years from first-hand witnesses from the area that didn't quite line up with this narrative, however. There's even a wild claim that the Roswell incident was actually a KGB plot ordered by Stalin to gaslight the U.S. into thinking there was an alien invasion following the 1938 War of the Worlds radio broadcast by Orson Welles.
1: We are bringing you an eyewitness account of what's happening on the Wilmoth Farm, Grover's Mill, New Jersey. We now return you to Carl Phillips at Grover's Mill. Ladies and gentlemen, my aunt. Ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen, here I am, back of a stone wall that adjoins Mr. Wilmoth's garden. From here, I get a sweep of the whole scene. I'll give you every detail as long as I can talk and as long as I can see. There's more state police have arrived. They're drawing up a cordon in front of the pit. The professor moves around one side, studying the object, while the captain and two policemen advance with something in their hands. Wait a minute, something's happening. A humped shape is rising out of the pit. I can make out a small beam of light against a mirror. Strikes him head on. Lord, they're turning into flames. Now the whole field's caught up by the woods of fires. The gas tank for the automobiles spreading everywhere. Coming this way now, about 20 yards to my right. Ladies and gentlemen, due to circumstances beyond our control, we are unable to continue the broadcast from Grover's Mill. Evidently, there's some difficulty with our field transmission. However, we will return to that point at the earliest opportunity. In the meantime, we have a late bulletin from San Diego, California. Professor Indelkoffer, speaking at a dinner of the California Astronomical Society expressed the opinion that the explosions on Mars are undoubtedly nothing more than severe volcanic disturbances on the surface of the planet.
0: When asked about the bodies that people claim to have seen being hauled away from the site, government officials claimed that they were crash test dummies. Even stranger than that, years later in the 90s, The redacted story was once again retconned, and it was now being touted as a top-secret, high-altitude surveillance program to detect Soviet nuclear tests called Project Mogul. But many have since claimed that Project Mogul didn't officially start until the 1950s. According to legend, the retrieved alien spacecraft and or bodies were brought to either Wright-Patterson Air Base in Ohio or a top-secret compound called S-4 near Area 51 outside of Las Vegas, Nevada. And supposedly the US government has been attempting to reverse engineer their technology ever since. I actually grew up in Vegas in the early 90s and remember first learning that Area 51 was in fact a real military base that used to be secret to the public. But I never really bought into all the wild theories surrounding it even as a sci-fi geek. But now that seemingly credible individuals like David Grush are coming forward, along with other whistleblowers, and the United States government seems to be taking the subject very seriously for the first time since the 1950s, it's really starting to look like we might have to re-evaluate some of those claims that the public was so quick to dismiss as a hoax all those years ago. Don't
2: look like no plane, don't look like no
4: helicopter. What the f*** is
2: it?
0: UFO sightings burst into the news in 1947.
4: These sightings have continued ever since.
6: The Air Force made an effort to clear the air about the phenomenon.
2: There's
4: nothing
0: to hide at all. I was stunned that we didn't have the integrity to pursue this. Whether or not there's any truth to the myths, the Roswell Incident of 1947 is just one of thousands of such cases reported by both credible civilians and military personnel around the world throughout the 20th century from the 1976 Tehran Incident to the Phoenix Lights of 1997. Not to mention all the Russian UFO encounters during the 80s where fighter jets were scrambled to intercept and even engaged with these craft, which was revealed by investigative journalist George Knapp who managed to smuggle top-secret documents out of the USSR after the fall of the Berlin Wall. And there's only been an increase in strange sightings since then. In fact, these unexplained sightings go back to antiquity, with several very intriguing Roman sources and even a few medieval manuscripts for the 1500s that talk about orbs and triangles flying through the sky. If you'd like to read more about those, check out my recent article from my history blog, link in the show notes. But don't take my word for it. Here's a couple of short clips from the recent congressional hearing with bipartisan representatives on both sides of the aisle tackling this topic. Judge, Mr. Chairman, I yield back negative 21 seconds.
3: Thank you, Ms. Ocasio-Cortez. Uh,
5: thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to our witnesses for coming here today. Um, I do concur with the ranking member as well as several other members here on this committee that uh, this is a committee for whistleblowers and for the protection of whistleblowers as well. So we understand uh, what you're putting um, on the table here and what you are putting on the line here and we thank you for that. Uh, Mr. Grush, you sat on the unidentified anomalous phenomenon task force created in the 2020 NDAA, correct? Yes. For the record, if you were me, where would you look? Titles, programs, departments, regions, if you could just name anything. Um, and I, I put that as an open question to the three of you.
6: I'd be happy to give you that in a closed environment. I can tell you specifically.
5: Thank you. Um, Commander Fravor.
6: I would say, and I've told people that you, you have to know where to look, they're not gonna divulge it to you because of the classification levels. But if you know where to look and who to talk to, which is exactly what Mr. Grush can point you then, you, then you
5: have them. Okay. Mr. Graves? I was an operator, so I was defending on folks like Mr. Grouch to do that homework. Okay. Thank you very much. I yield back to the chair. Ms. Mays. Thank you, Mr.
4: Chairman, and good morning to our witnesses who are testifying today. I want to thank each of you for being here to discuss a topic of grave importance to our national security. Earlier this year, a Chinese spy balloon was shot down off the coast of my home state of South Carolina. Since the Roswell incident in 1947, Many Americans have wondered about the dangers of unknown objects crisscrossing our skies, whether these are UAPs or weather phenomena, advanced technology from American allied or enemy forces or something more out of this world. So my first question, I have several questions and I'll I if we can just be quick on these first two I'm going to ask each of you the same question, um, and then I'll get to each of you individually. Uh, the first one, when you reported your experiences with a UAP, did any of you face any repercussions with your superiors, yes or no?
5: No. No.
6: I've actually never seen anything personally, believe it or not. So.
4: <laughs> All right. Um, and then do, do you believe there's an active disinformation campaign within our government to deny existence of UAPs, yes or no?
5: I don't have an answer to that.
6: As previously stated publicly, yes. I think previously with like Project Blue Book, yes, but currently I don't speak for the United States government.
4: Okay, thank you. Um, I have a few questions for Mr. Graves. Um, What percentage of UAP sightings, in your belief, go unreported by
5: our pilots? This is an approximation based off of my personal experience speaking with a number of pilots, but I would estimate we're somewhere near 5% reporting perhaps.
4: So like 95% basically don't report seeing
5: UAPs. That's just my personal estimate.
4: Um, in the incident off Virginia Beach, do you believe the Navy took the danger to your aircraft seriously after it was reported? Absolutely. Um, a few questions for Mr. Favor. As an expert naval aviator, have you ever seen an object that looked and moved like the Tic Tac UAP? No. Did the Tic Tac UAP move in such a way that defied the laws of physics?
6: The way we understand them, Yes
4: you've stated that the government is in possession of potentially non-human spacecraft. If you believe we have crashed craft uh, stated earlier, do we have the bodies of the pilots who piloted this craft?
6: As I've stated publicly already in my News Nation interview, uh, biologics came with some of these recoveries, yeah.
4: Um, Were they, I guess, human or non-human biologics?
6: Non-human, and that was the assessment of people uh, with direct knowledge on the program I talked to that are currently still on the program.
0: While this is all still very much a developing story, we may actually learn a lot more next year thanks to Chuck Schumer's UAP Disclosure Act, which recently passed as part of the defense budget this year. The legislation basically makes it illegal for any citizen, government agency, or corporation to withhold enigmatic materials of non-human origin from Congress, and breaks down a process for how to reveal this stuff to the public at large. I highly recommend taking the time to read through the document. It's fascinating stuff and really feels like they know something that we don't. Unfortunately, the frustrating part about all of this is it's either all an elaborate, unprecedented PSYOP against our own military personnel and intelligence operatives, or it's all real. And if that's true, then the government has been lying to us for decades. Now, I don't know about you, but I just want to believe in democracy.
6: This is ridiculous, folks. They either, they do exist or they don't exist. They keep telling us they don't exist, but they block every opportunity for us to get a hold of the information to prove that they do exist. And we're going to get to the bottom of it, dadgummit, whatever the truth may be. We're done with the cover-up. The reality is the American
1: public deserves to know. UFO reports not only exist, but persist. I mean, it's a, it's a definite
2: UFO.
4: The government owes it to this country to investigate sightings
5: of extraordinary objects.
6: We cover the whole entire sky. People want to know,
2: is this otherworldly? This could be one of the biggest events in all of human history.
0: We're living in a time of great uncertainty, like so many people before us. And while there's a lot of potential dangers, there's also so much hope for the future as technological innovation continues to progress. As we continue to work towards a more equitable society on a global scale, we have to consider that our firmly held beliefs might actually be wrong. While yes, it's good to be skeptical and extraordinary claims do require extraordinary evidence, I also think it's very important to question all of our previous assumptions, especially the ones that we take for granted. Because sometimes the answers are right in front of us But we won't see them unless we're open to the possibilities. Throughout human history, radical concepts have often been disregarded by mainstream culture, only to be later proven true. Galileo was put under house arrest for his heretical claim that the earth goes around the sun, while Giordano Bruno was burned at the stake for claiming that our sun was just one of many, each with their own solar system, which was later, of course, proven true. Despite mountains of evidence, the scientific community blatantly disregarded the theories of plate tectonics in the early 20th century and derided those who proposed the concept, until it was later, of course, accepted as an undisputable fact. The same can be said for quantum physics. The double-slit experiment, first developed by Thomas Young way back in 1801, proves that observation actually affects the results of how light behaves, either as a particle or a wave meaning that consciousness actually affects reality itself. Now, that doesn't mean we live in a simulation, necessarily, but like Plato's allegory, The Cave, The Matrix might actually be a good metaphor for the truth. As you no doubt have guessed, I am Morpheus. I imagine that right
1: now you're feeling a bit like Alice, tumbling down the rabbit hole,
0: hmm? We know for a fact that our senses are inherently limited, And the more we learn about the universe, the more questions we have. Thanks to the James Webb Telescope, scientists now know that the universe is far older than we originally thought, and the Big Bang Theory may actually be a flawed concept. Gravity warps time, and light speed might not actually be a universal constant. In fact, theoretical physicist Carlo Rovelli proposed that time doesn't actually exist, at least not the way we think it does. It's just our limited three-dimensional perspective of events in a linear fashion. In fact, there's a current ongoing debate within the scientific community about how there may be a universal consciousness underlying the very fabric of reality as we know it. If proven true, this would actually confirm that our consciousness actually exists outside of our physical bodies. And while this may have some profound implications, it actually opens up even more questions and answers. But if that's all true, even if it comes with so much uncertainty, wouldn't you rather be open to the mystery than be certain of a false reality? After all, if history can teach us anything, it's that the truth is often stranger than fiction. Like Socrates once said, the only true wisdom is knowing that you know nothing at all. Before I go today, I wanna give a few quick shout-outs I first want to thank It's Probably Not Aliens for featuring me on a quick segment on their two-year anniversary episode. It's a great show where they basically go through and debunk a lot of the crazy claims made on ancient aliens. I also want to give a big shout-out to my buddy Zach Derby from Podcasters Assemble and our friends over at the Neatcast podcast, where they get drunk and talk about cryptids. And whether or not you believe any of this stuff, it's always a fun time. And lastly, I need to give huge props to everyone from Against All Oddities, another fellow indie podcast that I might be guesting on in the not-too-distant future. If you're interested in going further down the rabbit hole on some of these topics, I highly recommend listening to The Weaponized Podcast with Jeremy Corbell and George Knapp, and Need to Know with Ross Coldheart for the latest on the UAP front. As well as this new podcast I recently discovered called Otherworld by Jack Wagner, which gets into all kinds of bizarre topics like psychic phenomenon, and encounters with entities it's pretty crazy stuff but he approaches it as a journalist which i really appreciate and last but certainly not least check out the national geographic documentary on disney plus ufos investigating the unknown well thanks again for listening to me ramble on and stay tuned for more epic fails of history thank you for listening to epic fails of history if you enjoyed the show, please follow us on Spotify, give us a five-star review, and share with your friends. You can follow me on social media at Eric Slater. That's Eric with the K, Slater with the D. And be sure to check out our other great shows from the Probably Work Podcast Network, including Podcasters Assemble, Comic Zombie, Too Young for This Trek, The RPG Years, and The Super Switch Club, a Nintendo podcast. Music and jingles produced by Deft Stroke Sound. This episode was edited by Eric Slater.
6: This has been a presentation of the We Can Make This Work Probably Network.
4: Follow us on Twitter
0: at Probably Work for more of our questionable content. Also, we have a website called ProbablyWork.com. Gottlieb.
3: Said, quote, uh, well, he realized, you know, this isn't the quote yet, I'm sorry. Uh, I've seen a Bond movie, let's make it, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, well, not a Bond movie, it's 1953, but you get the point.